0: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray you'd open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. A group of scientists were asked to look at a letter that had been written and to make presentation of their findings. The chemist had a look at the paper and the ink and described the various constituent elements that made them up. The physicist then stood up and made his presentation and his presentation talked about the protons and neutrons and electrons, the basic building blocks of materials that made up the ink and the paper, and then finally, a mathematician she stood up and said that, in her findings, she wanted to express the equations that governed the movements of the electrons. They were all right in what they said, everything they said was correct, but it was not an adequate description in that it left people with some burning questions like who wrote the letter and why had the letter been written. And so finally a young man called Jack stood up and he explained that it was he who had written the letter and it was a love letter and it was actually a letter to his girlfriend Ruth asking her to marry him. As we spoke about last week scientific observation and theory can answer all sorts of questions or help us to answer all sorts of questions or at least put forward uh, answers that seem as if they fit with the evidence. And so they can answer questions like the, the how question and, and the when question, but not so much about the who and the why question. For that, we need to go beyond observation of the physical world. We need to to, to see and hear, what does the Bible have to say? What does What does God reveal to us by His Spirit through those who have written down what God has said to them for our understanding. So today I just want to have a look at this passage in Genesis chapter 1 and think about, first of all, how does the Lord communicate to, to us through the Bible? In 2 Peter one twenty one, Peter says that it was human beings who wrote Scripture as they were carried along by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who has inspired the writing. He is the author of Scripture. Those human beings use all sorts of different styles and genres of literature. There was poetic, there was history, apocalyptic, uh, law, history, all sorts of different styles of literature. So it's important whenever we are reading a portion of the Bible or hearing it read to us that we understand what type of literature is this? How should I hear what is being said and understand what is being said? So for example last week our reading was from Psalm 19. Now verse 4 of that psalm describes God as pitching a tent for the sun. It's poetic language. It's wonderfully descriptive language. It, it, It describes in a very beautiful way the the movement of the sun from its rising to its setting and how God has put everything in place. But the poet, the writer of that psalm doesn't want us to understand God actually pitching a tent that the, the massive star that is the sun goes into. It's descriptive, beautiful language about the sovereignty of God. So whenever we turn to Genesis chapter 1 it's also important for us to understand well what type of literature is this? The reality is there is some debate about that. People do tend to recognize that there are elements of it that are highly symbolic, some that uh, perhaps are poetic, some uh, perhaps that are historic. And so it's important for us to try and understand in hearing Genesis 1, well what type of literature is this? How are we meant to understand this? Some read Genesis literalistically saying that the six days of creation are six 24-hour periods. Others argue that there are clues in the text that that's not the way it's meant to be understood. So for instance in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 in Hebrew, in the Hebrew the the word day is used in that verse but it doesn't refer to a 24-hour period which has led some people to say well perhaps in Genesis chapter 1, the word day also doesn't refer to a 24-hour period, but, but refers to a, an epoch or a much longer period of God's creative time uh, described here as a creative day. Sometimes in the midst of all that debate, which is an important debate, important to more fully understand what is Scripture saying to us, sometimes though we miss the profundity of what Genesis chapter 1 is actually declaring. God is eternal, Genesis chapter 1 is saying to us. And so the Bible begins, in the beginning God. Before anything existed, God was and always has been. The apostle John as he opens his gospel in the New Testament seems to echo those verses from Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So God and His Word, His Son, have always existed together. The Spirit has also existed, always existed too. And so in verse 2 of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, we read, The Spirit of God was hovering over the water. So there was the Spirit also involved in creation and bringing order out of chaos. And so God, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit has always existed. And that quality of being eternal belongs to God alone. Nothing else is eternal. Only God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And so the philosophical concept of materialism is wrong because it asserts that creation or material has been there always. That material is eternal. But the Bible clearly states that actually only God is eternal and all the material of the universe is not eternal. There was a time when it didn't exist. Now for many years, Within the scientific community, this was the main way of thinking. The fact that the created universe had always existed. But interestingly, in recent decades, that has shifted considerably. And the scientific community now holds, in majority, that there was a time when there was nothing. There was a time before matter existed. And so materialism, that philosophical concept of the, uh, of an eternal potential nature of, crea- of, of creation or of material, is incorrect. And so we know now, and the scientific community would by and large agree with this, that materialism is wrong. Materialism uh, doesn't have a scientific or a biblical basis. The second thing that Genesis talks to us about and declares to us is that God alone is creator. Genesis 1 asserts that God created everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, everything from top to bottom. Initially, it had no shape and it had no inhabitants. Initially, after it was created, it was, the, earth, the earth was formless and empty. But then God proceeded to give it form and to fill it. And so the writer of Genesis is describing to us God at work in forming and filling creation. So first of all it's formless and empty. But then God, after he is created, he then goes about shaping and filling everything that he makes. And so then we read about the six Days of creation. And so there's a pattern here. The first three days are all about shaping, putting the structures in place. The final three days, days four to six, are all about then filling the structure that's being created. And that's the way the, the writer of Genesis wants us to understand. It's all about forming and it's about filling. And There's a correspondence then between day 1 and day 4, day 2 and day 5, and day 3 and day 6. And so the writer of Genesis wants us to understand that what has been formed is then filled in the second half of the six days, in days 4, 5 and 6. So in the first day God creates light and separates the light from the darkness. Then the fourth day he creates the lights for the day and the night, the sun and the moon. So first of all day one he creates the shape and then he fills it with these bodies which are the sun and the moon. He wants to tell us about how the structure is filled. On the second day God creates the sea and the sky. Then on the fifth day he creates sea creatures and birds to inhabit the sea and the sky. And you know, currently there are 35,000 known species of fish and about a hundred more are discovered every year. God is such a, a powerful and creative God. Then the third day, God creates a fertile earth. And on the sixth day, he creates animals to live on the earth. And in that same sixth day, he creates human beings uniquely in his own image. It's a comprehensive account of creation. The Apostle Paul, centuries later, writes these words about Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ made everything, and Christ sustains everything. Isn't that an amazing declaration in those words from Colossians chapter 1? And so we know that God alone is creator. And so the philosophical concept of accidentalism is wrong. That's one that's espoused by people like Richard Dawkins and others uh, who believe that everything has happened by just pure chance. But the Bible declares that that's wrong. Isaac Newton built a wonderful model of the solar system centuries ago to help him in his studies. One of his friends who came in and saw this very intricate and elaborate model of the solar system was in awe of it and asked who had made it. Uh, Isaac Newton, knowing that this person was an atheist, uh, said to him, "No one." To which the man replied, "No, it, it can't be no one because you wouldn't, you couldn't find such an intricate structure coming into place unless someone actually built it." And then Isaac Newton made his point and said, "Well, if you believe that this simple model had to have an originator, a creator, then why, when you're faced," with the complexity and intricacy of the universe, don't you believe that there's a creator behind it? Isaac Newton believed in a divine creator. The next thing that Genesis tells us is that God is sovereign. God is the one who is an ultimate authority. You can tell when someone has real authority whenever they speak, things happen. For instance, whenever a head teacher comes into an assembly hall and uh, asks for quiet then quite often you, you, can't he- you can hear a pin drop. Uh, the voice of that principle has authority. And the same is true of God. So the Bible tells us that when God speaks, things happen. When God spoke, creation was formed. It talks about the power, the sovereignty, the authority of God that he has sovereignty over everything and that he alone has that authority. And so humanism is wrong because humanism humanism is a way of thinking that places human beings at the centre of everything. As one uh, poet, Charles Swinburne, describing this, uh, glory to man in the highest is is a good description of what is the core of humanism. But actually, the Bible doesn't let human beings away with such arrogance. Instead, the Bible says, as the angels declared in Luke chapter two, Glory to God in the highest and peace to God's people on Earth. So we know that God alone is transcendent. He is above and beyond all that he has made. We are not masters of everything. God is the master of everything. And this is wonderful news because it means that life has meaning. It's no surprise that in in recent times, in particular parts of the world, that as belief in a creator God declines, that people's sense of lostness, people's sense of having no purpose and despairing of life itself is increasing. People who believe in accidentalism are opening themselves up to a, a profound sense of purposelessness and of being lost. We believe that in Jesus Christ, we are alive in Christ and we live with Christ. And the Bible teaches that God made everything and that one day he will bring everything to completion when Jesus Christ returns. We know that life has purpose in Jesus Christ. second thing that we can, whether we can apply all of this good news of Scripture to our lives is in the fact that Scripture tells us that morality is defined, that, that there is right and wrong, that there is and will be justice. The writer Ernest Hemingway believed that what is moral is what you feel good after and what is immoral is what you feel bad after. But if, if morality is dictated purely by feelings or by choice, then how can it be clearly defined? How can it be enforced? How can there be justice? Because everyone will have a different opinion. The Bible tells us that since God made the world then there must be right and wrong. They're realities which are an expression, a reflection of his character. And so the tree of knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of right and wrong in the Garden of Eden was not planted by Adam and Eve. It wasn't they who decided what was right and what was wrong. God planted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, God is the one who defines and decides what is right and what is wrong, what is just. And that is good news. And thirdly, that worship is appropriate. We're all built for worship. All of us will worship something or someone. We will focus our attention on all sorts of things if we do not focus it on the Lord. Career, money, possessions, perhaps another person, even ourselves, but when we do that, we will become lost. Nothing in creation is worthy of our worship except the Creator himself, God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And so he expressly told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed and we have been following in their footsteps ever since that led to all sorts of mess in the lives of human beings and also in the world. But despite all this, the Lord did not turn his back on creation. The Creator did not turn his back on everything that he made. Instead, he came and lived among us. He came, as it says in John 1, and pitched his tent among us. He made his dwelling place among us. He came to redeem the whole of creation, to set everything right and to bring justice. Jesus came to live, to die, to rise among us, to let us know and experience the mercy of God and to be transformed, to be utterly changed, to be made alive in Christ and to be those who will pass through death into life will stand in the judgment and be acquitted through Jesus Christ. We'll be set free and we can live in a, a new heaven and a new earth where there be no more sickness or tears or mourning or death. Just as the Father brought creation into being through his Son, the Word of God, so he has brought a recreation about through his Son, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are part of that new reality. We know that God alone is creator. God alone is the sustainer. It is God alone whom we give our worship to. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of life. And we thank you, Lord, that even in the midst of the mess that we as human beings have made of it all, we thank you, Lord, that you have not forgotten us. But in your Son, Jesus Christ, you have come to bring about a recreation. Lord, we receive your mercy. We receive your goodness. We understand, Lord, that it is all about Jesus Christ. And so we worship. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We commit our lives afresh to you as stewards of this glorious creation that you've made. May we be responsible by the power of your Holy Spirit, exercising your wisdom and strength. Lord, we thank you for the minds that you've given us to, to learn and to discover. We thank you, Lord, for your words through which you speak to us to reveal Truth. Lord, open our hearts and minds to that truth. And Lord, may we live it out to your glory in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.